0: All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 90. We're doing Tuesday night calls. It's hearing from you. It's going to be fun. Y'all know the drill. We'd love to hear your thoughts on college football as we go ahead and fire this up. And It looks like my co-hosts are here, Sirius and JD. JD, have you made it up here?
1: Yes, sir. We are out here, and we are up here. I know that you just mentioned the uh, interview coming up with Dr. Danfis over at Texas State University. Very excited to talk to our first university president on this show, specifically about the impact that college athletics has on the academic experience. Obviously, Texas State being three and0 at home on the season, definitely has a profound influence on those freshmen who are, you know, experiencing college football live and in person for the first time. I'm sure there's going to be a fantastic conversation with him.
0: So again, if you want to join us, we'd love to hear from you. Whatever topic you want to talk on in college football, we always enjoy it. As we wait for anyone who wants to hit request, Sirius, how are you doing tonight? Doing great. Excited to uh, hear what our listeners
2: have to say about this past weekend, especially with some kind of exciting games and seeing Quinn Ewers return to the field for the red river, red river. And I, you know, I always stuck to shootout because that's what it used to be called, but I don't think we can call it a shootout legally after what happened this past Saturday.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know, the, hearing you try to say it, it reminded me of the purple burglar alarm. If you've ever heard that, you know, video with the Scottish people trying to pronounce it, but well, <laughs> the know, you, Red River you, Rivalry, purple burglar alarm. <laughs> you get two I, ways, two words into it,
2: and then the third one, it's like is it is shootout or a showdown or a rivalry? You know, you've got like multiple options that you're trying to work your way through and decide what you're going to call it today. I
0: love it. Hey, Luke, you're the first one up here. We'd love to hear from you. What's up, guys? How you doing? Great.
3: Uh, so I go to the University of Kansas. I'm a senior. And I was wondering, uh, what do you guys think about this whole Jalen Daniels nonsense? Is he oh, out for this season?
0: Is... is he not? Huh. well I he certainly doesn't think he's out for the season. I I'm sure most of you have seen or at least those of you I mean I know you've certainly seen the drama that's been oh, going yeah. on with that. Um, there was this incident earlier today where a reporter who had previously worked for oh, what's the newspaper the the it's a newspaper in Lawrence isn't it it's um but hey, it was a reporter who has covered Kansas before reported that he's expected to miss the rest of the season with a grade three separation of his right shoulder per, per sources. you got to love that. And then Daniels himself actually quote-tweeted it, saying, you know, sheesh, that's news for me. And yeah. then the editor of the paper straight up texted and said that the reporter, Zach Boyer, a former employee, of our site, who has done freelance work for us recently, tweeted he's out for the year. That info wasn't submitted to us and didn't go through a reporting process. We haven't been able to confirm any details. So that's been that's been some interesting drama in kind of college re- football reporting today. Now, Absolutely. I I'm not sure. I mean, I gosh, you know, part of the problem is too. Of course, a player's going to always say like, yeah, I'll be back, I'll be back, and then you know what what the coaches and and the medical staff might say could be different, but. I mean, guys, what do you think? J.D., I know, and serious, I know you guys probably have some thoughts on this. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see because, obviously, it's a big game this weekend. Everyone's curious to see what Oklahoma shows up and whether, how Kansas will bounce back from an incredible game um, and an incredible atmosphere. I know one of our guys is reporting on that game this weekend. What do you think?
1: I think first and foremost, I mean, Jalen Daniels has been a fantastic story in the Big 12, in college football. He's one of those guys that you love to hear that type of story kind of really be elevated to be the star quarterback on a team that has just not seen that success in such a long time. And obviously you see any type of injury to that type of superstar player, you really get upset about that. But one thing that really struck me was TCU is a really good team this year, uh, and they had a fantastic game against Kansas. But looking at what that backup quarterback can do with Kansas, with Jason Bean uh, still being able to have a very strong, competent game, uh, it's amazing to me that Lance Leipold has been able to develop multiple quarterbacks, at least in this short showing of you know being able to show that there is more than one quarterback that actually can play at the University of Kansas. Um, Obviously, I think Jalen Daniels is the better quarterback. He is the guy. uh, He is that leader. He's got that dog in him. But to see, you know, more than one quarterback succeed at Kansas, I was just delighted uh, to see that more than anything else.
2: Yeah, I think that if you gave Lance Leipold the choice, he's probably going to stick with, you know, dance with the one that brung you kind of mentality. Um, But, injuries are injuries and right now the only people who know for sure are the ones that are actually inside that Kansas program um so I guess we'll find out at the latest by Saturday um what his status is and hopefully by then you know if they have to go with Bean, he's gotten a little bit more comfort uh he's a little bit more comfortable in that scheme obviously you know he's come in from a different program and hasn't been running you know first team snaps because when you've got a, a guy that's playing that well then you know, he's going to get all of your first-team snaps for sure during the week. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how how Bean does if he has to play again um, on Saturday. And then as far as Oklahoma goes, I mean, can we say which Oklahoma team shows up? Are there actually two different types of Oklahoma this year? Is the team that we saw against Texas this past week what we're going to see for the rest of the season? If they lose more games, is it going to get worse? Uh, that's kind of where I'm at with Oklahoma because we know that they lost a ton of talent, both you know recruits and transfers, uh, lost a lot of coaches, and they have a totally different philosophy coming in. But this really just looks like a, a program that's just kind of in disarray uh, halfway through the season, and it, they're not there. Whatever you were expecting this, this first season for Brent Venables to look like, I don't think this was it.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Like, one of the crazy storylines that I still just can't process is not just that Kansas is good, but we have a game this coming Saturday where Oklahoma is coming off of their first three-game losing streak since 2014, and they're playing a game against Kansas where in the middle of October, Kansas can get bowl eligible and Oklahoma would be under 500. I mean, this is a program that's only had, I think, about five seasons since World War II, that they've finished a season under 500. But right now, it is difficult to look at this Oklahoma Sooners team specifically with how badly they've gotten beaten in these three games. It's one thing of, you know, you do a shootout against Texas and it's a four-overtime loss. That's one thing. You get surprised by TCU. I mean, look back at 2005. They've been surprised by that before. But to see them just get absolutely ransacked in three consecutive games where they don't seem... Like, they know what they're doing, and especially if Dylan Gabriel isn't playing this weekend. I mean, that is a quarterback room that is really depleted right now. Uh, And I'm just amazed at the fact that, you know, we're looking at Kansas uh, possibly getting their win against Oklahoma. to give them to bowl eligibility, and we're debating about which quarterback can do it because they have two different ones that very well possibly might be able to pull that off. What an absolute time to be alive.
0: Uh, Well, that was a – Luke, before we let you go, what are your thoughts? The mic monster got him. <laughs> okay, well, no problem. You know, just wanted to get as many of you all up here, so we'll keep on moving. Gamecock Superman, you've been really patient. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, thank you. So I got a, I got a, uh, sort
3: of two different uh, questions, or, or three actually. But the first question is two and one, I guess. What, who do you think should be the favorite in the in the Pac twelve and in the Big twelve right now? because those are the two conferences I sort of see as being wide open. I don't think that there really is a team that you can point to in either of those two conferences that, you know, you can definitively say this team will go undefeated and win the conference championship. Um, So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, you know, halfway through the season, who you think, you know, will – Emerge as the champion of the Big 12 and who will emerge as the champion of the Pac-12.
1: So I think this weekend we are really going to determine in two different games who those leaders in the clubhouse are going to be because there's going to be two fantastic games with, uh, you know, uh, they're on a bye right now, but in the week coming up, you've got UCLA and Oregon, and that's kind of really going to show whether UCLA is going to be that team in the Pac-12. I really like the brand of football that they're playing right now. Uh, Dorian Thompson's been absolutely fantastic at quarterback, and it almost seems like, you know, this is kind of like a Chip Kelly team uh, that knows how to win again, and we know what that looked like back when he was at Oregon. Uh, To think that he might have that at UCLA for this year, I think this upcoming game against Oregon is really going to determine, you know, if they're going to be of that metal. Everybody wants to pick. You know, USC uh, with all their uh, talent that they have on the offense with Jordan Addison, Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley, obviously giving them a lot of firepower again at the coaching level. Uh, But I think if we see UCLA and Oregon or conversely, like, I mean, you know, Oregon stumbled out of the gate early against uh, Georgia, that terrible 49 to three game. But they've looked really good against other Pac-12 competition. I think once we see the winner of that game, that's going to be my leading favorite for the Pac-12. And in a similar case, you know, Oklahoma State and TCU also are going to be playing this upcoming weekend, and that's going to really determine, I think, what the Big 12 is going to look like going forward. This is an unusual year where, you know, Oklahoma has not looked like Oklahoma of the past. Texas has shown that they've been vulnerable after losing on the road to uh, Texas Tech. Granted, you know, Quinn Ewers was out of that game, so who knows what that difference is going forward. But I think at least in terms of, you know, who has the momentum and who has the ability to keep showing. I love the stuff that Sonny Dykes has been doing with TC's offense. I love Mike Gundy showing that he is still consistently showing why he's been a coach who's won several games. I mean, we've had what uh, we, we always talk about how this team is underrated with how many 10 win seasons that Oklahoma state has been able to post up in this tenure under Mike Gundy. Uh, I think this game is going to really determine where that goes in the Big 12 race.
3: And then my second question, sort of jumping off of that, obviously we have two gigantic matchups in in both the SEC and in the Big 10. The first matchup in the Big 10 being uh, Penn State-Michigan, and then the second matchup in the SEC being Alabama-Tennessee. Um, my question is, do you think that either one of the underdogs in these two matchups are going to, or both are going to come out victorious this Saturday, Tennessee against Alabama at home and Penn State against Michigan on the road.
2: I'll take that one for, uh, for the Tennessee Bama matchup. I think it really just depends on if we see Bryce Young back on the field. Bama is not their normal self without him. Uh, We saw that in the A&M game. They found the rushing game, which they have been struggling a little bit to run the ball, in the, you know, last year or so. Uh, they've rediscovered that, it seems, by necessity. But we saw it late in the game when, if you've got Bryce Young there, then he's making a few throws to move you down the field, get the first down, and burn the clock out. And they didn't have it. They managed to come away with the win still, but it was very obvious that they are a different team without him. And I know a lot of people were going to say that, uh, you know, oh, as much talent as Bama has, you know, you can shove anybody in there. Quarterback, they could have a Heisman season. It very obviously is not the case. That is a different team with him under center. Tennessee right now, like that offense is rolling. So uh, if 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 Hindenhugger can, can roll through and play like he's been playing against this uh, Alabama D and Will Anderson, who has been playing really, really well this season, then that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Alabama offense to keep up. And I think that if Bryce Young isn't in there, they've got a really, really good chance of pulling off the upset against them and a better chance regardless that they've had in years, maybe decades, going back to probably the rocky block with, uh, when Lane Kippen was there. So I think that one's kind of a toss up until we know more about the uh, status of the starters. And then in terms of Penn State versus Michigan, you know, Michigan kind of found themselves a little bit of trouble. It looked like for, uh, for a hot second against. Indiana, and then they kind of got things figured out and and worked their way out of that one. But uh, you know, Blake Horms having a fantastic year uh, running the ball for Michigan. If they give him the ball and give him the chance to really, you know, impose his will upon Penn State's defense, then that could be an exciting game. Penn State they've looked really good this year, so I'm that one for me is is uh, probably a Michigan lean I think um, right now. But I'm excited to see how those two teams match up.
1: I think I have to also lean with a Michigan game as well, uh, at least in that matchup, because one of the things that we've seen so far is Michigan kind of doing that slower start, uh, kind of like playing with their food, if you will, because not only do they have that uh, late third quarter struggle against Indiana, they also had that same uh, issue with Maryland and trying to just put them away uh, and really close out that game. And I think what it's going to come down to, you know, if you want to try to hit the switch on that one, it's do you trust James Franklin uh, in order to make sure that he can make the right decisions in the fourth quarter in game time planning and decision-making. And that's why i got to kind of lean at least towards Michigan. I know that the athleticism is going to be there with that Penn State roster. I know that they're going to be a little bit more even-keeled with Michigan's talent. But when it comes down to coaching, give me Harbaugh over Franklin in those late-game decisions, at least for this one.
0: Well, if and, and I- J-
2: J.D., one. you sound like a man who's been uh- – once burned, twice shy at this point when it comes to uh, Franklin and his late-game decisions.
1: Oh, you know, nobody has ever tried to write a backdoor cover on that. No, not at all.
0: Huh. You know, I think if Penn State is going to pull that off, it'll be Sean Clifford keeping that offense moving because they've been good so far. They've got a good offense, uh, a a good O-line. I think, you know, if, if they do pull it off, and certainly they have the tools that could do it, it's going to be that offense keeping them in the game. I'm not sure... Beyond that, I mean, but yeah, again, the biggest question are, is is the coaching and whether, if it gets into a close game, what kind of decision-making gets made. I apologize. I just wanted to, to circle to the earlier question, the because I, I like JD's Pac-12 suggestion about the Oregon-UCLA game. The other one, obviously, we have to cite is this weekend's game with USC heading to Utah, because that's going to be an interesting one. And we're, Utah is obviously... Got a bit of a surprise by UCLA. Not as surprising, you know, in retrospect as that opening loss at Florida. But certainly Utah is still a contender. And how USC does at Salt Lake City is going to be a big question. If USC, which has looked a little shaky here and there, their only road game well, the only railroad game was at Oregon State. Stanford, you know, it was <laughs> Stanford. Uh, the Stanford game when it's USC is either half-half, and, and I think at that point the students weren't even there, so I wouldn't be surprised if there were more USC fans in Stanford Stadium. I've been to Stanford Stadium when there were more USC fans in the past, so it's, it's definitely something that happens there. But this U- Utah game is going to be a huge test. They, they had a heck of a game with Oregon State. That was a tight one. They only won by three. Utah could turn their season around here, and if Utah pulls it off, their season actually has them with a pair of games that that could be interesting because then they're going to play at Oregon and that could be a really determinative game of who the presumptive leader of the conference is. Of course, UCLA's already beat them, so we'll see how UCLA does against Oregon. But then if USC wins, they don't play Oregon in the regular season. It would presumably be if they were to both continue winning in the Pac-12 championship game. But their next huge challenge would be at UCLA, and gosh, if UCLA pulls it out, that, you know, if UCLA wins and USC wins, that cross-down showdown is going to be one of the most exciting in a long time. Oddly enough, <laughs> since Carl Durrell, I think, was the last time there was some real excitement This th- at this point in the season with both teams doing so well, which tells you how long ago it was when I'm saying there was a time when Carl Durrell was... Was making people like, wow, oh my gosh, look out for UCLA, but yeah, again, that gives you an idea of how long ago it was. Gamecock Superman, I know you wanted to to add something. You, you I saw you briefly. Yeah, I, I
3: wanted to uh, just comment on that USC uh, Utah game. Right now, Utah is the favorite. Um, they're favored by three and a half points. Um, I think that this will be Lincoln Riley's first real test at uh at Southern Cal. And if he wins, you know, it it definitely could bolster his bid for a playoff spot. And, you know, obviously he's got to clear the hurdle of Oregon and and UCLA if he wants to get that. But potentially you could see the first ever or, you know, one of the first Pac-12 schools in a long time to make the playoff. I'm pretty sure Washington made it back you know, a couple of years ago, but it's been the first in a, in a while that a Pac-12 school is even being considered for a national uh, championship playoff spot.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Gamecock Superman. We always love hearing from you. We've heard from you before. And, and once again, it was great hearing from you. So want to keep us moving. You've been really patient, pod like a champ. We'd love to hear from you. What's up? Yeah, so uh,
4: obviously you guys probably know uh, I'm going to ask an OU question because we're we're an OU podcast. But you know, there's there's been such a difference between the first three games that OU played and the in the last three games. Obviously, Dylan Gabriel being hurt for a game and a half is huge. But what do you all think has been uh, the difference? I guess even specifically defense. They looked great first three games and have not looked at that the last three games. So what are you what do you think's going on there?
2: I think that they're playing real offenses now. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of as simple as that. That um, you know, they, UTEP, Kent State, Nebraska. There's like a half a pulse between them um, this season, and then since then, they've faced teams that are well coached and uh, and have actually effective offenses. And I think that it's really putting this defense to the test. And it's not exactly like that it was a strength of Oklahoma to begin with. So, you know, Brent Venables isn't working with the normal, um, talent on the roster that he's used to at Clemson. Um, so I think that really that's, that they're getting exposed because of that. And whenever you bring, you have a coaching regime change like this, not only are you dealing with different styles, um, and different, uh, you know, coaching philosophies, but you also got to find the guys that fit this new system, um, that are the players that that coach wants and you can, do some stuff through recruiting in the transfer portal, but it's not going to solve all your problems. And, uh, especially for taking over a program that has been historically over the past few years as defensively challenged as Oklahoma. Um, and I know that they'd, they made some strides under Grinch, but, um, still it's, it's nowhere near the kind of defenses that, uh, we saw out of this program at Clemson. So it's going to take time to get the right guys in the right spots on the bus. Um, and we'll see just how much of an impact uh, Venables is able to have next year once he gets more of his own guys onto the, onto the field. But uh, yeah, I think right now it's just, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to look good against the Scott Frost, Nebraska. Apparently it's not as easy to look as look good against a not Scott Frost, Nebraska. Um, they're looking slightly more confident now, but uh, that's kind of where, where I'm seeing it with uh, this Oklahoma team.
1: I think one of the other things that I think is kind of an unspoken thing with Oklahoma is you talk about the change of regime. Think about how many people left with Lincoln Riley to go to USC, including trainers who have been there since, you know, Bob Stoops was coaching there. You have your defensive coordinators like uh, Alex Grinch going out there. So many assistants and staffers. Chose to go over that. Brent Venables essentially started over from scratch, and I think one of the things that didn't really get the proper amount of attention for what it truly was uh, was Kale Gundy being let go essentially during the preseason camp. You know, uh, we're not here to litigate anything that he said or did, but the idea that you had this long, steady hand who was going to be a part of this new regime, and then suddenly in the middle of preseason camp, you know, you're scrambling to fill in that tenth assistant role because. He's now no longer with the program. I think that changes a lot for a culture that is trying to change over and especially into a new identity. You have a lot of institutional knowledge that gets lost when you have a guy like that suddenly uh, no longer be a part of the program right at the worst moment. Uh, when all these guys are back and they're trying to get accustomed to their new dorms, their new lifestyles, and making sure that they're all set to go, and you have that big of a sudden change with your institutional knowledge, I think that's always been one big thing that Brent Venables has been struggling with for this year. Now, we had Andy Staples on the show not too long ago, and he was talking all about, you know, you needed the shock to the system in order to get the support that you need long term. And he brought up examples like, you know, Nick Saban losing to, Louisiana Monroe in his first year at Alabama, and then being able to go back to the donors and being able to go back to the administration and say, hey, I need X, Y, and Z if you want me to succeed. Brent Venables has that same opportunity here, uh, but I think one of the huge things that's happening is Brent Venables is essentially trying to start from scratch from Oklahoma, and we haven't seen somebody have to try to build from scratch at Oklahoma in a very, very long time. Granted, this is a historically bad season right now for Oklahoma. They haven't lost three games in a row in quite a while, haven't been shut out in a game since 1998, haven't been shut out to Texas uh, since I think it was like 1965 or something like that. Uh, But in order to see these blowouts happen again and again, I think a lot of this is just trying to build From scratch, And again, this is Brent Venables being a first year head coach. I think that's another thing that we also all ignore of, you know, yes, he coached for quite a long while with Dabo Swinney. He knows how to win at a championship level. He knows how to coach at a championship level. But it is much different when you are the guy who has to make the calls and the buck stops with you. And I think we're trying to see some of those adjustments of, you know, what happens when a storied program like Oklahoma gets punched in the mouth. How do they respond to that? I don't know if we know yet uh, how Brett Venables coaches that, but we're going to see what's going to happen because, you know, you have Kansas coming in and you're going to be playing them while they're trying to get to bowl eligibility and you're trying to avoid going under 500 Uh, and kind of like Sears said, uh, you know, you've had to play teams that are well coached. You have Kansas State in the top 25. Now you have TCU In the top 15 now, Kansas is still a top 20 program. And, you know, you're going to have Bedlam this year, and I promise you Oklahoma State is going to try to make sure if this is the last time they're going to play Oklahoma before they head off to the SEC, they want this game to hurt for the Sooners. And the sooner I think we see uh, at least a resilience from Brett Venables and the coaching staff that he is trying to build out there, I think the sooner we're going to see Oklahoma uh, get back to the way that we know Oklahoma to be.
2: Yeah, and I think that after a game like this Texas game, the biggest thing that this coaching staff has to be concerned about isn't even an X's and O's issue. It's how do you keep uh, your players from feeling like the sky is falling and keep morale up to where they think that they can still win, especially when you've got a team like Kansas that has proven that they are not the normal Kansas that you've got to play the very next week. And in that case, I think it's going to be as much of a motivation uh, question for the Sooner staff as it is an implementation one, just trying to keep the faith in these players that um, they have the ability to go out and win.
4: All right. My final question for you is uh, not necessarily who do you think the best team in college football is, but who's the most exciting to watch in your opinion right now, just like any given Saturday you think they could, you know, beat any team and, and put up a really good game.
1: I mean, right now, it's really hard to not have fun watching Tennessee football. And I know that's something wild to say after seeing all these different uh, variations of, you know, Butch Jones and Derek Dooley and Jeremy Pruitt and all these like continued disasters at Tennessee over the last, let's call it 15-ish years. Uh, But the fact that, you know, they have a guy like Hendon Hooker who can just throw an absolute dime, the fact that they can go into Baton Rouge and blow out a team 37 to 7, Uh, the fact that, you know, Tennessee just seems fun to watch now uh, is absolutely mind blowing to me. And for me, I've had the most joy in watching that because it's just been almost seemingly out of nowhere. Like, I mean, Josh Reibold, uh had them improved after last year, but I don't think anybody was expecting a top 10 Tennessee with an explosive offense uh, and the ability to just play so well against other teams. I think this Alabama-Texas or uh, Alabama-Tennessee game, excuse me, uh, coming up this week is going to be a fantastic test for them and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that Tennessee offense does against Nick Saban's defense.
2: Okay, that's not fair because uh, you definitely just stole my answer, um, but I will throw in before the Tennessee fans get mad that, yes, they did win 40-13 to against LSU, um, and as uh, SEC Shorts has already pointed out, um, they should have won uh, a little bit more than that, um, you know, there was some blown coverage and stuff by the secondary. Um, but yeah, I think that Tennessee is is the one that's the entertaining one to watch. Um, obviously, it's a very passionate fan base, to put it mildly. Um, they've been waiting for this for a long time. Um, they're kind of exercising some demons, you know, getting the win over Florida, breaking that streak, um, beating LSU uh, in the in the swamp for the, or in the in New York. Uh, yeah, excuse me. In Baton Rouge, in Death Valley, for the first time uh, since, uh, well, the last time that they played in, in Baton Rouge, actually, was the one that they lost because of too many people on the field. You know, the chance to go in, and they I think, only like a touchdown difference between the spread between them and Alabama, which is tighter than it's been in a long time. Super, super high-flying offense, high-scoring offense. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this team... Does especially when they've got, um, you know, two top three teams in Alabama and Georgia on their schedule. Right now it's just, they're interesting and they're exciting. Um, and it'll be int- you know, very intriguing to see, uh, how they do this Saturday against Alabama. And then, uh, if they win, I mean, they are just going to be on another level of, uh, of excitement in Knoxville. And, uh, that's definitely going to carry in. They're going to have a lot of swagger going into the back half of the schedule.
1: I think one other thing, uh, too, that I've seen that has just been, again, in that theme of surprise, I know that Kansas obviously has been a fantastic team. They're 5-1 in the top 20. Lance pulled, just making it an absolute joy for football in Lawrence. Again, another thing I don't think anybody was expecting at the start of this season. But I'm going to throw one other candidate out there as well. Uh, you know, we had their AD on not too long ago, but James Madison, has now had five games at the FBS level and they are now in the top 25 and just absolutely looking fantastic in the Sun Belt. They might be the best G5 team in the country right now. I mean, they're the number two defense in the country. They're giving up only about like 227 yards per game. Uh, they're one of the best offenses in the country, getting almost 500 yards per game. Uh, they just came off a game where they scored 42 against Arkansas state. Uh, they had the thrilling win over uh, Appalachian State earlier this season, took care of business against Texas State. Uh, and, I mean, I think it's a shame right now that we're not going to be able to see them in a bowl game this year because of some very stupid NCAA uh, malarkey, for lack of a better word, as they're trying to transition up. Uh, wouldn't necessarily be able to be eligible for a Sun Belt championship game either, but this is a team that, you know, when we had their ID on, they were talking about we waited until we knew that we could compete at the FBS level. We waited to make sure that we had the facilities and the financing, and then we had everything all together. Uh, and the fact that James Madison has been such a great G5 team, uh, I think that's also just been an absolute joy to watch. Uh, thirdly, uh, make sure that you get on some Dukes football uh, for this upcoming season.
0: <laughs> you know, if we're talking purely excitement, you don't care about wins or losses, i uh, Av State's still fun. Every game they've had has been absolutely entertaining. They're three and three, but you know <laughs> North Carolina, Troy, Texas A and M obviously. That lost to James Madison, that lost to Texas State. I mean, you never know which team is gonna show up, but they're gonna they're gonna make it interesting. Um, the only game there that has been in any way Less exciting was their, their role over the Citadel, which was to be expected, so you know they've got a pulse, and they'll always bring something interesting. But hey, Podcast of, uh, podcast Like a Champion today, thanks for joining us. It was great, it was great talking to you.
4: Yeah, I appreciate you. We'll at least say uh, Josh Heupel was an OU quarterback, so we'll take the small win. We can, we can get there.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, Chris, you've been really patient. And as you unmute, I just want to say you're all listening to RCFB Talk 90. It's Tuesday night. If you want to add to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Just hit request, and we'll try to get everyone up who wants to talk. What's up, Chris?
5: Hello, hello. How's everybody doing, ladies and gents? What's going on? Good to hear from you again. I know, I know. What's up, brother? Um, Man, I'm just here listening to the conversation. You guys changed my talking points a couple times. Uh, But, hey, I'm about to fire away. And I'm going to just give a comment really quickly. I don't know. If UCLA... Because my affiliation with USC, but if UCLA keep the track and, and and potentially go undefeated or whatever the case may be, or they beat my Trojans, so I'm probably gonna pull all my teeth out. Like I can't believe that other school is really in. I don't even have the words right now. They they're just they're they're, they're doing a good job. I, I can't I can't deny, but I I just can't let them beat my Trojans. But neither here or there. Um, I was gonna say um. I was going to basically bring up some uh, coaching top topics. Uh, basically, um, you, I heard you guys talk about Mike Gundy. Um, how come he doesn't get phone calls? I understand he's, from my understanding, he bleeds Oklahoma State. But, man, he's very proven. Um, the dude, knows, he knows how to win. And uh, I just want to get that little topic off. And then I had an additional question afterwards uh Stanford, do you think uh, David Shaw, his time is pretty up there? Um, they they look like they're going downhill um, from the Stanford that we know, of course, um, you know, when, back in the days when they used to play SC and stuff like that.
2: Well, I think that he did hit the, the nail on the head with Mike Gundy. He does bleed orange and obviously loves his time in Stillwater, but he has flirted basically with all of the big-name programs um, whenever they've come up and he's got a chance for getting a raise from Oklahoma state. I think he's actually floated the idea of going to Tennessee like twice now in two separate coaching cycles. So he's, he's flirted with it a lot. Kind of the same thing with, with uh, James Franklin where their name gets tossed around quite often, but usually it's just a chance for them to make the argument that they, uh, they need more money for themselves, more money for their assistance, better facilities, you know, those kinds of things, they can hit up their donors. And, you know, I think Gundy had a, you know, a T. Boone Pickens uh, ATM card there for a while. So, uh, you know, he's one of those coaches that um, has benefited from the coaching carousel quite often. In terms of like getting a lot of attention for the big name gigs, I think that there are probably some of the blue blood schools that are looking at continued success, not, you know, kind of rebuilding a little bit. That are probably slightly hesitant because he's, you know, been extremely successful for Oklahoma State, but at the same time, the number of like conference championships, the number of, of New Year's six games that he's been able to get into and win, it hasn't been at the same level as some of these other coaches that we've heard. You know, if you're going to go for like a Brian Kelly or Lincoln Riley, those type coaches versus going for Gundy, the results on the field have been slightly different. And uh that's, you know, not a, not a knock on what he's done to Oklahoma State. It's just that it seems like a lot of the seasons he's had a a stumbling block that's kinda gotten in his way. And obviously he doesn't have the tradition and the, the history that, you know, OU or, you know, and uh, Notre Dame or some of these other schools have to build off of and he's kinda had to make this a more competitive series against Oklahoma, um, and these other Big twelve rivalries since he's been there.
5: That definitely makes sense. I, I could definitely see that for sure. It just, it just to me when I watch their games and and I've been following them for quite a while now. Even when Justin Blackman was on the team um, playing Whiteout, man, they they won some games and I just don't understand. Like I I can see that he wants to stay there, but from my understanding, I don't see his name enough in that conversation when it comes to those big 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 schools like. The dude could coach, simple as that. He has a hell of a O.C., I think his name is Casey Dunn. Man, what they're doing offensively is, like, they're scoring, like, 40 points a game, almost every game. And, and, and it's proven. So that's why I was just curious about that. Oh, I was about to say, just
1: specifically with Mike Gundy, uh, I think it's a thing of people have tried to bring him out of Oklahoma State before, I mean, very famously in 2017, uh, when John Curry was going through his uh, disaster of a coaching search at Tennessee, I mean, it is on the record that they went and they spoke with him uh, at, I think it was that a uh, Omni in Dallas uh, to try to interview him. Uh, Mike Gundy has recently stated that, you know, the Buccaneers and uh, several years ago had tried to contact him several times to try to get a job and make sure that he could try to get out here. But one of the things that you also have to remember is with the exception of, uh, you know, a couple of years where he's like the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach at Baylor in like 96 and then Maryland for about three years. He's been at Oklahoma state since like 1985. So he was a quarterback there and then he was an assistant coach there then came back as an offensive coordinator under Les Miles in 2001. I mean, this is, you know, for almost 40 years, Stillwater has been his home. That's where he decided to play, and that's where he's decided to coach, and that's where he's decided to grow his family. And after a while, you know, it gets really hard to convince somebody after that much time to go try something else and try to rebuild somewhere else. I think it just comes down to the fact that Mike Gundy for better or for worse is Oklahoma state. And unless his results uh, end up going South, I don't think he's going to leave at this point uh, simply because he's not going to try to rebuild something that he's built for this long.
0: You know, Chris, I just wanted to, to really quickly also hit the other part of your topic. Cause you asked about coach Shaw, David Shaw at Stanford. And actually before I do, I want to go back even earlier, you know, it is interesting to see Chip Kelly doing so well, and I can see, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Trojan as well. But Chip Kelly's had five years. At this point, if if UCLA isn't doing well, I think this was going to be the year where we might have seen, you know, some hard decisions made in Westwood. Uh, now, USC is year one of a new coach, so I think most Trojans are just in kind of amazed that, that things have gone as well as they have. So far, um, so quickly. I, I don't think Trojan fans will be as crushed if there is a loss, and it could very well come this weekend or, or against UCLA or, or some some Pac-12 team to be named later because it is the Pac-12, the conference of cannibalism. But um, I would say this, to see Chip Kelly succeeding at UCLA to the level that he has at least so far this season does seem to match. And I mean, they weren't bad last year either. Would have been fun to have seen them in that bowl game. I know our reporter would have been thrilled if that game actually occurred. Uh, right. <laughs> but But uh, but you know, I, I mean, certainly this is this has been good so far. But going back to David Shaw, it's it's strange. I really wonder, especially I we I mean, I I assume you may have had a chance to watch the end of that Oregon State game. I watched the end of that game. That was insane. For those who missed it. It was, I mean, the prediction model was the classic one. It was one of those things that just swung wildly, where Oregon State was, seemed, the percentages were, they were going to lose, and then suddenly they just, they, they marched down the field and got that touchdown, and there were some, I mean, RG3 was having a ball. Like, I mean, he's, a, I, we've, we've talked about it, most people, I think, seem to be in the in the same agreement that he's. You know, pretty fun uh, as a commentator, but he was having—he was merciless with those Stanford um, students who were watching in shock as Oregon safe. But, but in general, though, normally you'd say, "Oh, David Shaw, he's probably safe at Stanford." But Stanford, I'm sensing something from them. I'm sensing they're not really happy, um, and that the way the team has gone so far is getting them to perhaps back away a bit from being you know, as embracing, they, they seem to be backing away from fun a little bit. If the, and I don't want to, I mean, maybe I'm just speculating here, but because I mean, people forget he was winning, you know, 10, 12, 11 wins consistently going to the Rose Bowl consistently terrorizing USC and whatever other Pac-12 teams were out there. And the last several seasons, you know, they've all been like four wins, four wins, three wins. And now this season's looking pretty sketch. I Stanford expects to have a winning program. They're not Vanderbilt. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not Duke where they're kind of hoping or Northwestern, where they're kind of hoping for a surprise season here or there. They got used to that level of success, particularly what came with Harbaugh and, and then with David Shaw, they had some lean years before Harbaugh. I, I certainly remember those. I mean, they made some extremely questionable hires, but they, they, this isn't this, isn't where that program expects to be. So I'm curious to see how it goes. If, if it keeps going the way it is for Stanford, I'd be curious to see if they stick with him, particularly if they keep losing at the, at the frequency they are. Because right now they're only one and four. They're going to be going to Notre Dame this, you know, this weekend. Uh, that seems to be a tough one because now it looks like Marcus Freeman I mean, I think it's kind of funny, you know, everyone's, you know, you see the jokes on RCFB that, Oh, they when Notre Dame is undefeated ever since he, he announced that he had converted to Catholicism. I mean, I'm going to set that aside. That that's amusing, but you know, it, it, it's nothing in and of itself, but you know, Arizona state suddenly showed it had a pulse and then they got to play at UCLA, Washington state at Utah. Cal is not exactly a bad team and somehow they have BYU at the end of the season. There's, That's going to be a tough schedule for for Stanford. I'm not sure there's a guaranteed win in any of that. So we'll see how long they'll go. I mean, yeah, their only wins against Colgate. When all you can do is beat a second-rate toothpaste, what? (laughs) No, I mean, but you know, what, what can you expect there?
1: But JD, I know you had something you wanted to add to that. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been very unique with Stanford is obviously they use the quarter system very high academic standards. I don't think it's a coincidence that immediately after the early signing day became a thing in 2017, we started to see Stanford kind of fall off of the cliff and especially the recruiting falling off of a cliff because Stanford also takes a more difficult time in getting their guys academically eligible. So when you have these other teams that are ready and good to go and sign in the middle of December, uh, and then you have Stanford trying to make sure that their guys can academically qualify make sure that they're all set up and good to go. I mean, David Shaw has been very much on the record before. Jim Harbaugh was on the record before of, you know, you want to try to find as many Andrew Lutz as you possibly can. Anybody would love to do that. But when Stanford looks at all of these prospects they're not just looking for, you know, who's the blue chip color for the blue chip uh, player who's going to do really, really well for us as a four star or five star or even a high three star. It's going to be who are the guys who will also academically qualify for our institution. And they only get a handful of guys that they're even going to start off with because they go, hey, we know we can't get this guy on campus. We know this guy isn't going to uh, be able to succeed in the classroom. And I think one of the huge things is getting that academic uh, vetting done has been a really difficult challenge under the new early signing day. Uh because again, back when you had it in February and nobody could sign until, you know, about February 5th or so, you had the opportunity to make sure all your guys were vetted, everybody was lined up in a row. But now that you got to sign guys early in December, you don't have, you know, their first semester of their senior year. You don't have the academic rigor that you would have in, you know, trying to make sure their SAT scores are up, making sure the ACTs are up or anything else like that. And it becomes a lot more difficult to recruit to a place like Stanford. Granted with uh, Georgia Tech, we've seen something similar. Granted, who knows how much of that was Jeff Collins and, you know, deciding to spike God by going away from the triple option. But you have a very similar uh, issue where teams with very high academic standards have really been – having a challenge in order to make sure that they have the same players coming into the system as they did previously before the early signing day system. I think right now that's the only reason why Shaw hasn't been necessarily asked to be relieved of his duties, uh, but we'll see how this season goes on. Because again, if you go one and 11 and your only win is against that second rate uh, toothpaste company, you know, we've seen other coaches like uh, Buddy Tevens or even Walt Harris uh, post up these goose eggs of seasons. Uh, and then they got let go of that at Stanford.
5: Definitely. That, that definitely makes a lot of sense, gentlemen. I, I, I just was curious because, you know, like, from my understanding, uh, David Shaw is a good dude. He's a good coach. But then, like I said, from the Stanford that I know, as as, as my partner saying, that they're used to these 10, 11, nine win seasons in this last couple of years. They have not even been even close, so I just wonder like, wow, okay. And like I said, they're they're one and four now, and I just wonder like, is that time up? Is his job getting pretty sketchy? Or are they pretty much gonna look for someone else?
0: Stanford definitely plays it, I think, close to the best, but I I would not. It's so weird. I hate saying that, but I wouldn't be shocked either way. And it, but it has been four years of disappointing results. I could see them, they would be, they would absolutely tolerate one or even two bad years, but four, four might be a little odd. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Chris, thanks for joining us. It's always great hearing from you, man. Thank you. Hey, Dano with Gopher Insight. Love to hear from you.
6: Hey, yeah, a quick question. Um, So, well, I guess I got two questions. The first one is what's going on? What, what's your perception on? why the big 10 West right now with Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa are three of the top scoring defenses at this point of the year. Is that, and this is a conference that usually has Wisconsin as the top 10 defense. What is going on on that side of the conference where it's still this early in the season where they haven't even started playing
0: each other yet? What, what's causing that trend? <laughs> oh man, I love that question. It, Gosh, why why are why are those teams such high scoring defenses? I'm not sure. Sh- hmm. Guys, do you, have, do you have a good the, answer? The, the, this?
6: Popular, the popular answer is well, they all play each other, they all have bad offenses, but this is early in the season. You know, Minnesota's only played Purdue so far from
0: the west. They played Michigan State who's Yeah, and they didn't down. have they didn't have, you have for that. They didn't have Mohammed Ibrahim. That was huge. <laughs> I mean, for those who no, don't know the gophers, but the that's point an is that lot. you
6: and and, and Iowa's played Michigan. That you know they haven't played you know Illinois yet. They haven't played uh, you know Northwestern yet. The the teams that you would think would be the lower scoring teams right now. So they haven't played the West offenses yet. They've all played non-conference games at this point. They played you know a team from the Pac-12 or you know the or well most of them played Pac-12 teams this year. Um. What's causing that trend?
0: Well, I'll say this much: I think Minnesota. We can't necessarily peg as not having an offense. I think, again, as I said, against Purdue with Muhammad Ibrahim on the on the sideline, they were not the same. You know, Minnesota offense that we we had seen in earlier games, and he's supposed to be playing against Illinois this weekend, and and that's going to be quite telling, I think, for the Gophers to see heading into Memorial Stadium can they knock off that ranked you know uh that no- that knocked uh that ranked uh, uh Illinois team but i know i know your questions about defenses jd mm-hmm. serious i know you guys wanted to chime in here
2: i'm just going to say that you know as a fan of a team that historically um has struggled with vanderbilt um and my general impression is that it's easier To coach up a great off, a great defense than it is an offense because offense relies on having, if you want to have a great one, if you want to have a top three or four, um, offense, you really need a fantastic quarterback. You need some fantastic skill players and there are only so many of those to go around versus defense. A lot of it comes down to, um, your scheme and how well you can coach your players to stick to it. Um, so if you have a good defensive, a great defensive coordinator who can teach that. Um, or even a great head coach like Kirk Ferentz or uh, Kirby Smart, um, then that really helps you in that sense of being able to focus on that side of the ball and coach players up. And if you're Iowa, you don't have an offense. So you basically just put all of your points into special teams and defense, and that's all your focus. Um, And that's your only chance of winning games if you can't score a touchdown, an offensive touchdown in in a game. So I think that that might be part of the reason why those teams have it, is just because working with the personnel that they have, because they're not Bama, they're not Ohio state, they're not Georgia in terms of being able to recruit in those elite blue chip recruits on the offensive side of the ball um, that you just focus on taking your players and making sure that they know their responsibilities and they execute, execute, execute. Um And you can turn, two, three and four star players into really elite defenses if everybody buys into the system. So um it's kinda of wild that they're one, two and three right now. So um that's that's pretty pretty ridiculous, um, seeing those lined up like that, uh, all coming out of the same division.
6: Yeah, and it's just odd from the standpoint where last year, I think Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa were three of the top ten. Um you know, and uh, you know, at the end of the year they do all do play each other. And those tend to be, you know, moderate scoring games, and the teens to twenties. So they're they're not fifty five, forty five games. But I thought that's interesting. The other question I had is regarding the AP voting. Why are there teams? You know, if you you know, whether you want to interpret if there's bias or not, I, I think it's a well accepted. Idea that there might be some bias in the way that the voters p- vote, but with it going into week six, week seven of the uh, year at this point, why do we still have teams ranked that only have one Power Five win? How do, how does that happen? Like uh, it, it, with the interest of teams having to play, you know, better schedules, better teams. How are how are we having allowing voters to vote teams as high as you know casting a team at 15 or 20, where at this point in the year, they still only have one power five win. How, how does that happen?
1: Because at the end of the day, it's really hard to find uh, 25 teams that are quote unquote good. And so you kind of got to start looking at the teams that haven't eliminated themselves yet. So, I mean, I think you could easily make the argument of, you know, Texas could be 6-0 and if they've had a healthy Quinn Ewers all season. And maybe that's the reason that they should be ranked. On the flip side, if you're going to look at a team like, let's say, you know, I'll even pull a team out of a hat like a Michigan, where you haven't even beat anybody who has been ranked or uh, really above that level of, you know, what's a good, quote-unquote, strength of schedule. uh, But they're still going to be a top-10 team because we've known what Michigan is like. Uh, You could also go on the flip side of look at uh, Tulane, for example. One of their power five wins is against, you know, uh, Kansas State, which is currently ranked uh, in the top 20, uh, but Tulane not in the rankings themselves. Uh, I think when it really comes down to it, it's October and it's hard to figure out who are the good teams, who are the fool's gold teams. I mean, shoot, right now Syracuse is undefeated and we have no idea whether the Orange are good or not. Uh, but uh, when you're this early in the season, you've still got uh, a bunch of unknowns. You've still got a lot of football to play. And at the end of the day, you still need to put 25 teams on that ballot. So you're going to get a couple of little bit of oddities no matter what. Um, I do want to circle back, though, on one other point that hasn't really been touched with that Big Ten West question that you had. Uh, I think one of the reasons that we've seen such strong Big Ten West defenses, but terrible offenses, uh, is if you look at the coaching staffs that you've had up in the Big Ten West, look for the consistency. Uh, Iowa, one of the reasons that they've had such a great defense Phil Parker has been their defensive coordinator since 2013. He knows that defense inside and out. He knows how to recruit to Iowa. He knows how to develop players at Iowa. And look, we see the same exact thing with Jim Leonard at the University of Wisconsin. He's been there since 2016. There's a reason why they decided to fire Paul Crisp and make him the interim to essentially uh, advertise him as a potential head coach uh, for the remainder of, you know, however long the Wisconsin Badgers want him to be around. Same exact thing for Minnesota. When you look at their defensive coordinator, I mean, Joe Rossi has been there since 2017 as a defensive assistant. He's been essentially the defensive coordinator since 2018 when he was named as the interim. Uh, But when you start looking at all these different offenses, I mean, you're looking at guys like Brian Ferrens, who is essentially the only reason that he is a coach is because his dad is the head coach. Uh, you look at situations like, you know, Scott Frost had come in and he said, you know, I'm gonna go to Nebraska and I'm gonna develop Florida speed and suddenly, you know, he didn't have the players in Nebraska to give him the speed that he originally had at UCF. I think it really comes down to at least in the Big Ten West, when you have those coaches that are consistent for a very long time and know how to play in those different regions, you're going to end up having a substantially stronger side of the ball uh, as opposed to, you know, a bunch of uh, offensive coordinators that kind of seems like it's a rotating cycle or at least a nepotism cycle in the case of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Uh, But when it comes down to who is able to actually get their guys in the system and grow them up quickly, always look to the guys who have been there for a while and know how to do that consistency. Well, yeah, and just
2: guess, to to tag on to uh, to JD's comment there, um, if you make your own poll every week, you realize just how hard it is. Once some some seasons, you know, when once you get to fifteenth, and you're kind of like ah uh, splitting hairs here, trying to figure out who else is going to be in your top twenty-five. Um, but it's always risky whenever you have like an arbitrary kind of condition. So like one win over a P five team. Um, at least or two wins over a P5 team. because then you get into some weird situations where like Washington had two wins over P5 teams they were they were 4-0 um uh an FCS win a G5 win and two P5 wins and they're okay they look pretty good right and then they go in and play at UCLA and lose and then lose again at Arizona State um mm-hmm. and they're not the team that we thought that they were. So if you look at it that way, then you kind of have to take the whole body of work into account. Um, Not just whether or not they meet a specific criteria, but um, look at it with a little more, little bit more. If you're going to do a, a eye test type human ranking, not rely on a computer or um, some kind of an algorithm, then you kind of have to take the whole thing into account because, you know, there's a reason why, Georgia and OSU and Bama get the benefit of the doubt at the start of the season because fans kind of know what to expect from them at this point. Um, you know, if, if they're going to come out and put a substantially different product on the field than they did last year, uh, then something seriously wrong has happened. Um, and until they do that, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt and they're going to be ranked high. Um, once they prove voters wrong, then they're going to get punished for it to varying degrees. Right. Um, so a lot of that is it's just kind of I mean, we can call it bias or whatever, but it's the same thing if you're building an algorithm. Pretty much all of the good algorithms, um computer polls, whatever you want to call them, they have historical aspects built into them where they're looking at you know returning yardage and and um you know offense, returning uh starters, uh past performances, all of those get kind of baked into them, and they lose power across the season, but even at the end of the season. You know, there's some pretty famous computer polls that are still going to be waiting fairly heavily, you know, 20, 30% of the ranking is going to be based off of what they've done in the past three years, basically. So, uh, you know, it's sometimes we get frustrated as fans, but that's always something to consider is the fact that you kind of have to use a little bit of if either your gut or your eye test or whatever to fill in the gaps until you get back into the back third of the season
6: yeah well i guess one of the things that um well i guess the the other thing is i'll ask you this question is um and i don't know what the right answer is but you know like there's two ways to look at voting on the poll right you know it's like the one of the arguments came up was you know the kansas was getting ranked here until just recently and the argument is well i know if they're going to play this team i would definitely bet on the other team, because, you know, whether it's the SEC team or a Big Ten East team, it's like, I would bet on that team to beat Kansas that up if they played each other. But, you know, Kansas wasn't beaten at that time. The other one maybe had a loss or two. So if you look at it, should the, que- the question I guess I'm asking is, should it be based on your perception of who that better team is if they played head-to-head? Even though somebody might have a couple losses like Texas, sure, Texas would probably beat them head-to-head. Or should it be based on the actual results? that have taken place that year. I mean, in, in theory, if you don't take what the actual results are at the end of the year, then why are you playing the games? It should, you know. That, I guess that's kind of the catch-22 there, isn't it?
2: Well, that's part of the issue with a with poll is that everybody has different criteria. There's no unified system where, you know, like the AP doesn't tell everybody this has to be a resume poll or this has to be a predictive poll. Um, so you mm-hmm. get all of these different polls and, and you throw in stuff like, um, SP plus and, and things like that, that are looking at not even, you know, resume or anything like that. They're straight up saying, well, if you're going to bet on somebody, you, this team should cover the spread against that team. Cause in some cases, they're not even talking about winning. They're talking about covering the spread. Um, so everybody has these different criteria, but they all get thrown into the same poll. And that's part of where you see this kind of like cognitive dissonance of why did somebody leave that team out and rank this team? Um, There were some examples from the most recent one with some really head scratching uh omissions. And the guy, you know, explains his mentality and it doesn't make any sense. Like objectively, it does not make sense because it's like he's only paying attention to part of the part of the teams. So, there's so many moving parts in these polls that it's really, it's kind of like the, uh, the jelly bean contest at the, at the fair, you know, where there's a jar of jelly beans and you put in your guess for how many there are. And, mm-hmm. you know, the average person is going to be wrong probably by a fair amount. Uh, but if you put them all in there and you get enough samples and they're actually, you know, trying to guess it, the average turns out to be remarkably accurate a lot of the times. Um, so as a group, We're pretty good at predicting things. Individually, not so much. It all evens out. So that's kind of the whole mentality of the poll is if you put enough voters into it, then the consensus, the average opinion of them, it's going to kind of coalesce into something that more or less makes sense. Um, So that's kind of something to keep in mind is that everybody's got their own criteria for these rankings. And uh, unless they've specified what it is, Sometimes it's kind of hard to judge because some are looking at what they've done. Some are looking at what they think they will do. Um, it's kind of all over the place.
0: Well, I think that's a good spot to go ahead and start wrapping up. We've been going on for a little over an hour. Well, on behalf of myself, Bob Ekhari, on behalf of JD Moore and Sirius, thank you all for joining us. This was our CFB talk 90 hearing your calls. We do these every Tuesday night and it's always fun So have a great night, everybody. Now, I'm going to hang up and listen.